When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Kosky. After talking about Curtis Hansen's LA Confidential, today we're bringing in The Nice Guys, the new buddy action comedy from Shane Black, the writer-director of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and the highly paid screenwriter responsible for such 90s blockbusters as Lethal Weapon, The Last Boy Scout, and The Long Kiss Goodnight. Set in 1977, The Nice Guys stars Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe as two of L.A.'s not-so-finest. Gosling plays Holland March, a lazy private eye whose business is dried up with the introduction of no-fault divorces. Russell Crowe plays Jackson Healy, a burly hired goon who beats people up for a living. Holland and Jackson team up to track down a missing young woman named Amelia. They get invaluable help from Holland's daughter, Holly, played by Angry Rice, who's considerably smarter and more focused than the two of them put together. As many, 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 many people keep dying, the three are roped into a dangerous conspiracy involving the porn industry and the big three automakers. A couple of people say you're a pretty good detective. That's a lot of work. I want you to help me with this case. My profession's very complicated. It's very nuanced. Well, look who decided to show up for class. This is a high-profile case. You seen this girl? Name's Amelia. What's in it for me? We can do this the easy way. We're currently doing it the easy way. Dex, there's like whores here and stuff. Sweetheart, how many times have I told you? Don't say and stuff. Just say, Dad, there are whores here. Where are you going? I think this is going to work better if we split up. Wow, that's really insensitive. Yeah. Why? I had to question the mermaids. What were you doing while I was working? To me, uh, The Nice Guys is so close in spirit to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and probably other Shane Black movies, but certainly Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that it almost feels like 
a semi-sequel. So uh, was this, you know, all of us have seen and appreciate Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, no? Yes. Right. Uh, did this feel like a satisfying follow-up? Almost entirely unsatisfying based on the on the high bar set by Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which we should say is Shane Black's first film as a writer and director, right. which was had all the, the sort of uh, crackerjack plotting and sh- uh, snappy dialogue, but also had this sort of le- extra level of self-awareness. Um, it has, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is the ultimate unreliable narrator and some really fun meta trickery that way. This one doesn't have that, but it has everything else. And I, and I uh, yeah, I, I really like this movie a lot. Yeah, not a satisfying follow-up for me. Um, mm. I I hold Kiss Kiss Bang Bang like pretty close to my heart. I it's just it's such a pitch perfect kind of parody of L.A. Noir that also functions perfectly as an L.A. Noir. I think it's just incredibly clever and it it moves so quickly. The characterization is so sharp. The dialogue is so funny. And to me, this was a much lazier film and not necessarily lazy in a bad way, but it's a it's a different film, like despite the fact that it's another L.A. Noir that's genre self-aware and that's dealing with like all of these signifiers that are near and dear to Shane Black's heart. To me, it's a very different kind of film. And it's like the difference between something like Burn After Reading in the Coen's library and The Big Lebowski. You know, they may both be like kind of shambolic character studies uh, that go nowhere in the end and are kind of meant to illustrate the futility of life through all of these crazy characters who intersect in some way. But they're, they're still capable of being very different films. Mm-hmm. And for me, Kiss Kiss and, and this are very different films. I'm just going to nestle right in between uh, Keith, <laughs> Keith and Tasha as, as, as far as my, uh, yeah, it's, it's warm here, um, <laughs> as far as my reaction to it. I kind of agree with Tasha and that it wasn't setting off my kiss, kiss, bang, bang alarms uh, nearly as much as it seemed to have yours. Um, mm-hmm. and, and part of that, I think, is just the tone and it, it not feeling quite as tight as, as Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang did. I'm feeling a little more like shambolic, I guess is the word we keep using. My, probably my biggest problem with The Nice Guys, but the caveat that I did find it a very enjoyable film and I thought it was very well written and very well performed, is the central mystery just didn't come together in a satisfying way at all. And like the, the payoff to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is so satisfying in a way that I did not find The Nice Guys payoff to be. I don't know. I mean, well, I loved it. Uh, so I, yeah. I should come out and say that. But I, but I, I just, I really appreciate Shane Black just as a writer. I mean, he's one of... Even I, not is even. It, is I it fair to call you a fanboy? I'm a fan. I, I'm a fanboy because there's yeah. not, there's all really. If you think about screenwriters, people. I mean, he's not a pure screenwriter anymore. And neither is somebody like Charlie Kaufman. But but even before they became d- directors, those were really two of the only people I can think of where uh, I know that voice from the script. The script, no matter who's directing their f- films, and their films have looked uh, had very different l- looks to them. Uh, I, I recognize the the voice and the sensibility that of the writer, and that comes through. Uh, and so Nice Guys impressed me as a piece of writing, just as Kiss Fist Bang Bang did. I mean, it, it is a film we, you know, we had talked in the earlier segment about L.A. Confidential and how it how it does and doesn't, you know, kind of follow that L.A. noir tradition. I think this is just so firmly does. Uh, it really, you know, the, the shambolic, its shambolic nature is is totally a feature and not a bug to me. Uh, I love these sort of shaggy dog tales. I think it's one of those movies like The Big Lebowski where it seems like it's it's disorganized, but if you watch it over that the uh, that, that all the pieces probably would come together quite nicely. It's a film that has the time, unlike LA Confidential, to just hang out with these characters, get to know them a little bit better, get to know the atmosphere, uh, which in this case is 1977. 
you know, kind of immerse itself in that in that world a little bit more. So so it had that going for it. And then, you know, what it didn't have, what Kiss Kiss Bang Bang had at that self-referential quality, this is a little more straightforward, but it's also got a kind of a, it's, it's what distinguishes it to me is that it's kind of a knockabout comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, uh, and uh, Ryan Gosling is kind of the difference maker for me in this movie. Uh, he excelled uh, last year in The Big Short, and here he just sort of confirms his ability as a comic actor, and uh, you know, he does so much verbally and physically in this film to just make me really laugh a lot. And, and if, if they ever do a Lou Costello biopic, they, you've, got, you've got your guy, because he does the whole Lou Costello routine at one point. Yeah, he's, he's really fun in this movie, and I kind of, like, you know, it was interesting to go back to LA Confidential, because it's like when Russell Crowe was kind of a new thing, and I've kind of grown a little weary of Russell Crowe over the years. I feel like I've seen kind of the same notes being hit over and over again. I think this was a nice, not exactly send up of, of the Russell Crowe persona, but but uh, uh, acknowledgement that he could do a little bit more than that, too. I think I think he's quite good in this film. Yeah, well. I liked him tremendously. This is the most I've, I've liked Russell Crowe in a long time. And I would actually what, put what him. was it? Like, he was just so heavy for so long. I mean, just, just the performance. Yeah, so yeah. There. I hesitate to say there's a laid back quality to his performance because I don't think that you can quite call that character laid back. But there's like a certain kind of comfortableness uh, in his skin that I get from that character that I don't often get from Russell Crowe. He, he always seems a lot more kind of tight and buttoned up. It is in his character that I felt the big Lebowski the most. And um, but weirdly, I also felt a lot of kind of John Goodman vibe coming from him, but not John Goodman in Big Lebowski. I know that's confusing, but um, it it was just a different vibe than I'm used to seeing from him. And I, like I said, I would put him on par with Gosling in terms of performance here. Um, Very different performances. And he does kind of function as a straight man, but it's a little more than, than a pure straight man. I feel like, you know, the buttoned up Russell Crowe that we're used to would be the quote unquote straight man. This is more of a, a foil, I guess. Yeah, he's used to playing these like after he got out of his like <laughs> extremely tightly wound, like angry young man actor roles, he kinda graduated into these sort of like bearish, phlegmatic roles. And I just I like I always think of him in Master and Commander and just sort of that uh, sense of the kind of like paternal but like very internal character who doesn't give a lot of way and i feel like here what makes him feel different is that he is giving himself away he he exposes like who he is and how he feels about life with everything he says and does and it's not because he's running his mouth constantly he's not explaining himself to us verbally but i think as you say there's that comfort in his skin there's that feeling that like he knows who he is and he's okay with it and he plays that very actively russell crowe was my favorite part of this movie and for me a lot of it comes down to like the little story that he tells about breaking up a robbery in a diner and there are so many like little writerly notes to that (laughs) where he talks about and he wasn't even getting paid for it (laughs) for instance and and he seems astonished at that. Like he seems astonished that he stuck his neck out with no money on the line. But it's also so important that like his big defining moment as a human being was an act of violence, like practically everything else in his life. Hearing you talk about that, it strikes me that he's not an angry character. He's a violent character, but that violence isn't informed by anger or rage the way that a, a lot of Russell Crowe's characters have been. And neither is Holland March. Like he, is, th- This is a violent movie. A lot of people mm-hmm. die in a lot of horrible ways. There's a lot of blood and gore. But the fact that this violence isn't couched in rage makes it 
different. Well, I don't want to say necessarily passive, more. They're both. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, obviously, uh, Russell Crowe's character is is paid to be active. Yeah. But so was Ryan Gosling's character, and he doesn't want to do the work. Like <laughs> yeah. he just he would just much rather just take the money and and have no no right. forward movement. Go, go back in a couple of weeks and tell him that he's the, nope, still sorry. working on it. Came up, came up empty. <laughs> no, 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 not not came up empty. Just we're still working on it. We need more money. You right, got to yeah, keep yeah, the con yeah, going. Yeah, and they, yeah, and you get the scene where where uh, a woman is asking about her husband who is uh, sitting in an urn. Uh, <laughs> and he takes shelf. the job. Like he doesn't he d- exactly. He doesn't point he's the type. He's the type to take the job. And then and then his daughter, who's great, we should talk about yeah. her. Oh, uh, takes solves everything. But I I wanted to mention one one more thing about Shane Black that I didn't talk about uh, that is improved I think from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang which is I think he's become a stronger and more confident visual filmmaker there's a lot of a lot of the jokes in the film uh, a lot of the best moments are not in the dialogue are purely visual or foreground background things if you think about that wonderful scene where they're traveling up the uh, elevator the glass elevator to enter this uh, scene that, that they discover very quickly is not a scene they want any part of they go back to the elevator and this all this stuff is happening all these pe- things are flying out the window you know and then of course the opening with the, the car going through the house uh, there's that and I love March falling off the balcony and like rolling down the gr- hill into the distance like that was just yeah. a very nicely shot and the fall the fall yeah. towards the pool yeah. where oh, that's the best. one man splats. I was gonna I was gonna I was, <laughs> oh, gonna, yeah. I was gonna mention that. And that's and that, that's another thing too, is that Kiss Kiss Bang Bang had that was all about deconstruction. And this movie has that quality too, but it doesn't call attention to that. It just you 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 have uh this shot that is a cliche in action movies where someone falls from a balcony into a pool but then it ends up with, with uh, this wonderful visual where you get uh, an unexpected result. And uh, there's a lot of in- incidents like I mean, that. that is, is brilliant, too. It's yeah. just the rhythm of that, of those falls, is uh, really yeah. nice. Yeah, definitely. Um, Although I'm going to kick back on okay. uh, on the, the best comic moments being visual because I, I do think that there's some really exceptional comic moments in the sure, writing Sure, as but, well. but, but I think he's got that, that tool in the kit now. Um, not to say that Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was... was uh, you know, not not an interesting looking film, but uh, but I think he's grown, and, and you know, you get the the, the you know, I think the climax uh, involving the film and the canister, and I think that's all that's all the timing of that is. It's a sophisticated action sequence with a lot of comic payoff, you know, a lot of sort of comedy payoffs in it, and uh, that's a hard thing to pull off. I think he's getting better at it. I I just want to acknowledge that okay. what Genevieve said about the mystery falling apart. I think the mystery is a mess. Mm-hmm. I think it could, for me it completely falls apart, and that really does weaken the film for mm-hmm. me. It's just the feeling that this uh, that the mystery is just kind of a joke more than anything else. Like again, it reminded it, me it, of Roger Rabbit it, it again. Feel, it feels like magnetic poetry uh, mystery. Like <laughs> you know, it's just like automakers, porn industry, stitch them together with some adverbs. I, you know, like I was it, really taken with the idea of smuggling a political message into a porn film. Yeah, though. I mean, that, that line was, is that great was, about like, what's the line? It's like, uh, it's finally a, a, a porn film where the plot is the most important part. Right, right, yeah. yeah. But also like, that is, to me, struck me as plausible. Like, that would be one way if there was this grand conspiracy and you needed to get out to, to wide circulation and especially in the, in the 1970s, that would be one way to do it. I just don't see the justification for this like abstract quote unquote experimental film with you know ribald political messages in it was really going to upend the audio industry to yeah. a degree that's worth all that death. My situation is very delicate. I, that's where I know you from, right? The TV. You're prosecuting that that car company thing. The lawsuit for the catalytic converter. Yes, that's half my day. The other half I spend 
on pornography. What kind? Like which films? What's your favorite? No, no. <laughs> anti, anti-porn. Right. Like a crusader. Should I be writing this down? Yeah, write it down. The Vegas mob is trying to spread its porn operation to Hollywood Boulevard. And I'm doing everything I can to stop it. Thank you. Porn is bad. And, and then adding the family connection between Amelia and Kim Basinger's character, who's a high-ranking official at the Justice Department, mm-hmm. like that adds another wrinkle to it that even at the end, I did not understand how that relationship resolved. I mean, obviously resolved because Amelia died, but yeah. I was not clear on what we were supposed to make of the mother-daughter thing there at the end. That's because I don't think Kim Basinger has a character in this film. Yeah. I think she's sort of this figurehead of like evil corrupt like we we understand that it's an la noir so uh there is systematic corruption yeah and she's a figurehead of systematic corruption but she's not a person and the fact that she's willing to murder her own daughter over some combination of conspiracy and hatred of porn and we're not really sure like where the balance is i just i end up not really knowing who she is or why she's doing what she's doing in a way that would make her villainy you know memorable she's a because reasons villain yeah Yeah. well i think there's also a thing too and maybe this maybe this is knock against uh, against shane black or is i don't think he's sincere about any of it you know i think it's i think i think he is interested in um how these sorts of stories are structured and pieced together uh and he's very good at the mechanics of it And, and, and so you can see all of the echoes of other la noirs and how they feed into this this shambolic tale um but but the actual content of that tale is to him not that important hmm. um i think it's much i think it's more, it's more interested in the relationships yeah the film. that could be a good set of kiss kiss bang bang as well i would think too yeah I, just, I don't think i don't really feel, i think i think it's i think the plot is doesn't really uh, you know amount to a hill of beans to him um, hmm. um which well, is not which is not to totally i mean I, forgive it you know, I don't want to say, "Hey, he." The meant writing's to, he, great, he except meant for to, the plot. It's like, like I don't want to. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to make the case like, you know, he meant to do that. You know, the Pee Wee, the Pee Wee Herman case of uh, of him meaning to to screw up uh, the plotting or him not really uh, following through on the plotting in a satisfying way. But I I do think that is a feature of a lot of L.A. Noirs is that it's really just about the characters in the world of the the film and not so much uh, where you're being led you know on a plotting level which which uh, is a little bit of a murkier area yeah but we just got finished saying what a great feature that was of la confidential and maybe just watching these two in such close proximity to each other it it made that feel like more of a fault in the nice guys yeah, the fact that the the mystery didn't really go anywhere, or mean anything, or have any emotional but payoff. Fl- but I'm fl- what I'm saying is that you could flip it around and say Ellie Confidential is is too connected to the yeah. uh, the plot. You did and, say and that in our first. Half. I did say that. So yeah. so uh, can you have can you have both? <laughs> Probably. Okay, but when you talk about you know it's it's ultimately about the characters, about not not about the plot. I would really love to know how you guys read that opening scene because that is our introduction into the world. It's our introduction into the tone. It's our introduction into the mystery. It's our introduction into a character that we're not going to see again, but that we still spend the movie chasing. And it's just such a a baffling conglomeration of like image and mood. And I I find myself, 
kind of reacting to it very negatively because we're we're seeing a dying woman being like sexualized fetishized but we're also seeing a a child's reaction to it it's such a complex moment in so many ways and i would love to hear what you guys thought of it what it meant to you i think the boy is shane black is my yeah that was kind of my thinking too Um, this is is sort of his trip back to the to when he was growing up uh, yeah exactly he explains so much about shane black (laughs) yeah he's just he's just the you know whatever it's amazing this formative incident hasn't come up before (laughs) well i mean he's a little older than us but but it's it is sort of i can remember kind of being a kid in the 70s staring into that adult world that was maybe even a little closer to kids uh i don't know that's not fair to say but but it, it was definitely you know, the, yeah. In every in every house, there are hidden pockets of pornography. Not in, and, not in mine, but but but, uh, <laughs> but I knew it existed. You, yeah, no, that's a whole shadow world of suburbia that I'm not going to share on this podcast. But I felt like that was kind of a personal moment for Black that opening. That, well, and that, just just as a kid and having this peering into adulthood and then have this, all, you know, both the sex and violence of adulthood just kind of literally crash into your house I, I i i i enjoy that opening scene i i understand there's some uncomfortable elements in it too <laughs> what's the line about like what's her how line? do you like my car big how boy? do you like my car big boy it's the name yeah. of the, name of the, the name. i mean right. it's, it's yeah. this Which, weird grossly sexualized rosebud moment in a way i just i there's so many things going on and I like, you, you, see, you seem to imply that the original rosebud moment isn't sexualized <laughs> oh, well, he is he is sprawled out on the bed when he says it so i guess it is sort of sexy in a way did you did you have any thoughts on the opening scene like what did it do for you i mean i'm willing to buy that interpretation i i i think it's it's an interesting way to look at it and it makes that scene more interesting but i think again going back to the plot and the mystery not hanging together it just confuses the matter and it it kind of sets us off on the wrong foot as far as that aspect goes but you know to scott's point about that not being what shane black is in it for and this scene perhaps being a more meta commentary i buy that I think he's. That's where his head is at always. I mean, there's always that. How can I make this about me? It, it really is. I mean, he makes he makes personal films. These are you know if you you know if you look at his work through through the '90s, they all have. Uh, I mean, he really his sensibility is so firmly rooted in you know a particular sort of dime store fiction and you know in noir. I mean that that that's where his head is always at, and and this is kind of a. It's a self homage, hmm. uh, the beginning of the movie. But um, we should probably get to the topics. We haven't gotten to a single dang one. So let's let's uh, let's. We've been off on some sort of symbolic journey that doesn't we really hold together. <laughs> we have been, but we're. But, gonna, but we've all had some great character we, we, moments. We, all right, we've been we've been we've been nice guying this thing. Let's 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 LA confidential okay. it a little bit and tight, tighten things up. Genevieve, get us started with your topic. Yes, uh, my topic is the law versus justice. So one of LA Confidential's big thematic fixations is this idea of justice and how the law and law enforcement can inhibit the pursuit thereof more than it facilitates justice. Uh, This theme is baked into the plot, but with its matters of police corruption and into its main cop characters who all fall somewhere on the spectrum of crooked or shady. All of these men have different relationships with the idea of justice, what it means to them, and the best way to go about achieving it, be it through brute force, through glad-handing and game-playing, or some combination thereof. The Nice Guys also features characters seeking justice outside the system of traditional law enforcement, though their motivation stems as much from the desire for a good payday as it does a moral code. Both March and Healy are independent contractors, so to speak, working outside of traditional law enforcement with no obligations to its perceived rules and regulations, which, as we see in L.A. Confidential, are purely theoretical anyway. <laughs> right. 
Uh, they ultimately come up against that corrupt system, though, personified here by Kim Basinger as a high-ranking Justice Department official. And there's that word again, justice, serving to mock the idea that such a thing can exist within a world populated by corrupt and powerful people. The law is finite while justice is fluid, but in both of these films, both are ultimately undercut by individuals pursuing their own agendas. So I was just wondering how you guys kind of interpreted and reacted to these films' views of the law and justice. Do you think this is merely an extension of the L.A. noir milieu that these films are playing in, or is there some sort of bigger statement happening here? I I think, if anything, this one's more cynical than L.A. Confidential because there's at least a possibility that crimes will get solved and that the police will end up doing the right thing, even even if there are so many elements within the police force that work against that. Whereas here, I don't think there's any sense that, that the, that the law, uh, there's pretty much no police presence in this movie. And and what you, what, uh, what you get, do get it from the authorities from, from Kim Basinger's character is, is a sense of absolute corruption, the ability to sacrifice her own daughter for, for her political and, and, uh, and personal gain. Uh, so yeah, I, I think this is this makes LA Confidential look, look positively uh, upbeat in terms of, of the possibilities of the law. Oh wow, I I disagree with you on that one. I f- I think what we're seeing in both films is uh like people realizing that doing the right thing is worth it. I I think in LA Confidential you have three different men coming from three different directions to kind of supersede their own beliefs in order to to seek out the actual truth, even if it hurts them, even if it you know destroys their their relationship, if it destroys in one case a life. And I think one one of the things that's most interesting to me about the night guys is you start out with two guys who are not nice guys you know one of them takes money to 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 beat up randos uh over things like stop dating my 13 year old daughter and one of them scams still a white nice (laughs) i never even put that together yeah i know it's the casting has to be there's a wink there in the casting with 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 Crow and Basinger uh, being in this one. But the two of them come to a place where they really are chasing down the mystery in order to to find the girl, to find the girl, to save the girl, and then eventually to avenge the girl, to solve the mystery, because it's the right thing to do. And again, I'm going to come back to that little speech uh, Russell Crowe makes about how <laughs> he once stopped a robbery even though he wasn't getting paid, and he says that that was the greatest day of his life. Like, he implies that is who he wants to be, is somebody that does the right thing in the moment without thinking about it and that becomes the theme of the whole film as far as i'm concerned is you know running down the truth and creating justice even when the law doesn't create justice you know these men kind of become their own law much as the the people in la confidential have to like supersede the people who represent the law in order to better represent the law and find justice it's a complicated relationship between the two of them but i think ultimately these films both kind of come down in a positive positive way about like the human spirit and find an optimism in people doing the right thing. I guess they both get to the same place from, from opposite directions. I mean, because you, you do have in, in the nice guys, uh, two characters who really, really, really do not want to be involved in any of this. <laughs> and, uh, and really the film makes such a joke out of their passiveness and their unwillingness to engage in the fight. I mean, you know, there, there are moments, you know, like the scene in the, elevator where they're cowardly where they just have where where the, their fight is there for them to to engage in and they they just step right on back onto the elevator so but they all but they do get there they they get that they are eventually sort of called into into, into action because who else is going to do because it because it falls on the hood of their car 
Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of that, I think, is because this is actually a world with consequences. I mean, it's it's a comedic world, but I keep coming back to that moment where uh, Ryan Gosling puts his hand through a, a glass window in order to break into a house and just kind of the comic <laughs> fall apart that happens after that. Or that, like, falling into the pool sequence. This is a world with really deadly consequences, and standing up for the law is really dangerous mm-hmm. and likely to take you to some very ugly places indeed or at least just the hospital you're a private investigator <clears throat> look there's 20 bucks in there all right just take it no i'm not in for that i told you you and an old hired me yeah so we can do this the easy way we can do it the glenn hard way. what lily glenn two ends old lady hired me to find her niece on tuesday you just gave up your client i made a discretionary revelation no no you just gave her up i asked you one simple question but you gave me all the information I thought that's what you wanted what I'm very sorry that you didn't get the message. <clears throat> I get it. I dig it. What about now? Give me your left arm. Huh? Your left arm. Give me your left arm. This one. No! Yeah, come on. No! No! Right, look, when you're talking to your doctor, just tell him you have a spiral fracture of the left radius. No! No! Deep breath. No! if I have an apple. <laughs> <laughs> so Tasha. Yes. Um, yeah, these films, they're set in uh, their period pieces, both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nice Guys is set in 1977 uh, and LA Confidential is set in 1953. Mm-hmm. What, what do these films have to say about period? This is your topic, yes? Yeah, I mostly it, it's just kind of a realization. I it, Again, it came out of uh, watching X-Men Apocalypse, which I'm going to just take every possible opportunity to hijack this podcast and turn it into a discussion of <laughs> like, X-Men you're Apocalypse. You're like Keith with Batman versus Superman a few weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, except he was desperately trying to not talk about it. <laughs> and we kept trying to Shanghai him. I still am. <laughs> You're still desperate to not talk about it. Yeah. This, well, is the, this is more Shaggy Dog <laughs> podcasting we're doing here. <laughs> it really is. I'm. I'm just telling you right now. This podcast does not wrap up well. There's a porn <laughs> film. It doesn't really make sense. Um, in X Men Apocalypse, it takes place in the 80s, and the signifiers of the 80s are like a few people have big hair. And at one point, there's a Ms. Pac-Man machine. Like, there's very little placing the film in the setting that it is ostensibly in. And just kind of noticing that, it it actually made, when a signifier, a period signifier did pop up, it made it feel more out of place than anything else because they were so few and far between. And one of the things that struck me about these two films in comparison is that I re- really kind of got a little bit of that with uh, Nice Guys in a way I didn't get at all with LA Confidential from the first moment that I like I didn't remember that it was set in 53 I didn't even necessarily remember that it was a period piece I vaguely thought that it also took place during the uh the 1970s until like the first moment you see Russell Crokett's character and the first thing that comes out of his mouth you know you see that uh that Jack Webb like high and tight like marine haircut you see the car he's in um he calls in with his police call sign and you know you're in the 50s you look around at every Everything that everybody's wearing, the language that comes out of their mouths, the cars, the decor, and then you get actual historical signifiers like the beginning of the Santa Monica Freeway or the specific movie stars that are built into the plot that are so important to the story. And you know exactly where you are in time. 
One of the things that bothered me about the nice guys watching it the first time was I didn't feel that sense of of place in the 1970s. The characters are like wearing 70s clothes. And again, there are these like weird little pop up things like, oh, there's a Tower Records on Sunset Boulevard. Or, hey, his daughter, who you really wanted to talk about, we never did, is playing Pong at home with a friend. Yeah. Like, there's just these oddball, oddball little touches. And then you've got the 70s saturation of the soundtrack. But other than that, this didn't feel like nearly as steeped in its era to me as LA Confidential did. And I'm wondering if it struck anyone else that way or it's just me. Uh, no. Yeah, I, dis- <laughs> I, I, I disagree fairly strongly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could have watched uh, just some driving around with all the, like, the Jaws 2 uh, movie posters and things like that. <laughs> well, I, anachronism. I, I well, thought it, well, it was a year early, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It, it felt like they weren't necessarily... Uh, leaning on it that as hard, it felt like a very natural um, 70s setting to me. I felt like they weren't pushing it too hard, but I never forgot I was in 1970s. Well, and the the era plays into the plot in some really important ways. Like this, this era in porn is a very specific era where it was filmed on film and projected in theaters. And you know, I mean, watch Boogie Nights again if you if you want more <laughs> uh, more about that. Yeah. But that specific element of the plot, I think, is very specific to the 70s, late 70s in particular, and, and LA. And the whole thing with the smog and the introduction of the catalytic converter, like that's a very specific 1970s thing too. You know, I, I don't think it's quite fair to imply that, you know, these 70s trappings are superficial. I mean, there are kind of superficial elements sprinkled on top and some anachronisms, but this is a movie that was written to take place in this era. I don't think it's something that you could pluck out and put into a different decade and it would work the same way. No, but listening to you like describe the plot elements, it, it occurs to me that what I was trying to say, like with that mad shambolic ramble, we've got to get <laughs> shambolic in here a few more times, is... It's the for me. It's the difference between like a, a setting that feels very artificial and deliberate, and one that feels very natural and suffused into the background. And for me, LA Confidential just feels more natural. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I would almost say the ap- the opposite, uh, based on just the narration and the, that the whole device, the whole device of the Danny DeVito character mm-hmm. and LA Confidential. It f- felt very faux, faux noir to me. It felt like a what are those what are those coats, Carl, that are Fake fur coats. I don't fake know. fur coats. Fake fur coats or right. faux fur. Right. Fo- it's like a faux, faux fur, fur coat of, of <laughs> noir. Fur, uh, uh, that that uh, um, this one's this one felt a little bit more steeped in its its era to me. It had that kind of like inherent vice vibe to it as well, and a lot of and it, and it had the vibe of a lot of seventies noir uh, night moves, which uh, which was an influence in the Long Goodbye and. Yeah. What other movies do we consider doing for this, well, this and all podcast? All the other things we mm-hmm. consider doing for the podcast, right? Yeah. I wonder if what you're reacting to, Tasha, is just a symptom of what we're kind of talking about, Shane Black's style being very kind of referential and, and like, look at me. And it, it perhaps makes these things feel less natural because there is attention called to them and attention paid to them in the filmmaking style. And maybe that reads as superficial to you, like decorous. Sort yeah. Of. yeah, I think I think the seventies in particular has that quality where you're watching mm-hmm. a movie in the seventies. Yeah. Days of Confused is like that too. You can look at a movie like Days of Confused and think, "Wow, this is just this is just a caricature of the of the era." This is uh, because you know I think we kind of make fun of 
of the the fashions and the haircuts and that sort of thing. But uh, well, yeah, to me, I guess it felt it felt checklisty. It felt like he created a checklist. It's like what was big in the seventies in L.A. Smog. Let's have yeah. a scene where smog. we talk up with that? a lot about smog. <laughs> yeah. Smog. But I I agree with you hundred percent about the uh, the voiceover narration, the Danny DeVito's voiceover narration in L.A. Confidential yeah. being really. It's too much. As with so many voiceover things. It's just like, not that well written. Yeah, it's just... And I mean, he's... It's no, way, no way Elroy wrote that, right? Oh, no hush, chance. hush. It, it's meant to be hacky. <laughs> like, it's meant to, to yeah, confer true. that he's a that's hacky true. writer. Yeah. But the problem with saturating your film with hacky writing on purpose is that it still reads as hacky. <laughs> okay. So this actually is a really good opportunity, Scott, to bring up your topic, oh, which okay. I believe you were going to talk about, like, the language and the writing. Yeah, um, well... Uh, Shane Black loves words, uh, and I I love the words that Shane Black uh, writes. And one of the pleasures of his films, and this is certainly true of The Nice Guys, is that they feature stylized dialogue in an era where improvisation or naturalism more often holds sway. Uh, There's a musicality to his dialogue that that few, maybe the Coens, I suppose, can match. And there's a level of self-consciousness, too, that's specific to him. Uh, Black has always realized that his voice as a screenwriter belongs to an earlier era in Hollywood. Uh, so his films become all about reconciling that voice, which is informed by you know 40s and 50s noirs and detective fiction, with whatever the trends of the day required. I mean, he kind of invented, in a way, his own trend with the with the buddy picture, or at least the modern buddy picture with Lethal Weapon, and sort of and he, that's something he keeps returning to. You know, the dialogue in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang constantly reflects on itself and on the trappings of the genre, which is the big reason why it's so clever. The Nice Guys is much more straightforward, but it still insists on getting the language exactly right. And though it's not, it doesn't call attention to it, uh, like in the voiceover narration, which, which in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, you have a scene like the one where Ryan Gosling's daughter tells her, you know, uh, Dad, there are whores here and stuff. And he replies, don't say in stuff, just say, Dad, there are whores here. <laughs> and, and, and with that, pedantry of a great writer makes it onto the screen. And I, I appreciate that. I just appreciated it as a written thing. The dialogue has rhythm to it. And, and, uh, it, you know, as, and as a writer, you just appreciate that. You just appreciate that kind of care because I think so much is given over to to what actors bring to the table or uh, or maybe there's just not enough interest in in language uh, to, to, to where that becomes an important part of a, of a narrative but that's not just, that's not true with Shane Black's films and I and uh, you know there's a satisfy satisfaction to that I think it's they're pleasing to watch in that respect hmm. I, I really enjoy the callbacks uh, to that and stuff thing you know where she she takes that pedantry over her father's and immediately carries forward carries it forward and applies it to somebody else who's <laughs> talking about walking in on people who were doing anal and stuff and she <laughs> she does the same thing no don't say and stuff just they were doing anal which is you know coming out of the the mouth of a child is is shocking yeah but it's such a deliberate combination of vulgarity and precision like a vulgarity and pedantry it's it's a really weird combination and it comes funny. from and this is the film too it just it comes from an, a, an understanding of the of the mechanics of movies that if you watch a lot of movies it becomes surprising. I mean, you know, we talked about the falling, from the the shot of of the characters falling from the balcony, um, and how that plays with your memories of how these things usually go. You know, Amelia's fate in this film is shockingly blunt uh, in a way that you don't expect. It just, she just, it just it happens, and in this character that they've been going through so much trouble to find just gets killed, and that's it. You know, there's there's so many little moments like that where. I think Shane Black understands 
that the that viewers know what to expect, and he just tweaks it just a little bit. Uh, and I think that's just good writing. I'd never seen The Last Boy Scout until a few days ago. Partially, I watched it partially prepared for this, and also partially because I was sick. I had a sick day, so yeah. let's watch a movie. It's good to see black. Um, unfiltered, uh, yeah. which which is uh, I didn't I didn't love the last Boy Scout. I, I thought it was f- fine in, in, in its in its reprehensible early nineties ultra violent misogynistic uh, yeah, yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's clearly a compromised version of, of Shane Black. It's like you know, burst of brilliant dialogue and then you know, just kind of dumb stuff that doesn't really work and and so on and so forth. So it was it's it's I like the uncut Shane Black and also it was interesting also. You know whether it's a mark of uh, of an auteur or of uh, of laziness. There's so much recycled from Last Boy Scout in this, from like wisecracking teenage daughter to sort of the, one of the character having a tragic backstory involving a dead wife and so on and so forth. Shane Black loves a, a plucky kid. Sidekick. Yeah, plucky, plucky kid, and and yeah. See also Iron Man three. Yes, exactly. Uh, it is definitely an element uh, mm-hmm. of Shane Black stuff. Not to sidetrack the conversation, but Tasha, I get the sense that you did not care for his his daughter. Oh character. no, I, I really didn't. I found her. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just I I Scott. What do you like? You don't like <laughs> Tasha. You don't like the, <laughs> With the you, don't, you don't like the precocious imp. <laughs> no, I really don't like the precocious. I don't. I I have such a an affection for kids on film that feel like kids that feel like like actual lived in children in some way. Mm. And by lived in, I mean like have little houses in their chests and like little <laughs> people. In. I don't know what I mean. Uh, yeah. I what I mean, mean is I, f- I feel like I've already gotten like decades on decades of like American bad kid actors playing weird, fakey adults. Oh, but and she's good though. She's good. She's, she's not going to give, I mean, I can see where you're saying you, this kid is acting like too much of an adult, but the, the actress don't, don't put it on this poor kid. She does a great job. Please it's not, don't, it's please not the, don't do it. <laughs> Stab, stab, stab. It's not the actress's fault. It's that that role is written to be that character, the like the overly precocious, like Mm -hmm. overly precise, overly self-aware. And I think it comes to an interesting place in the end when she's in over her head and like some of that having to have been an adult to deal with her kind of reprehensible father. Mm -hmm. Reprehensible is is a strong word. I mean, he's he's dealing with trauma. He's dealing with trauma and he is not dealing with it well. Yeah. But he's the one who's failing as a parent. He like, is. It's not her responsibility to parent him, and she is. She's dealing with it better than he is. I think a lot of my affection for that character stems from my affection for Veronica Mars, which mm. had a lot, and I tweeted something to this effect, but the, there were a lot of echoes of Veronica Mars in that character for me. I think a adult child fits in with the whole L.A. noir cynicism that we've been talking about and I just really like think it was also the L.A. in the 70s the 1970s in general was a time when, when, when kids were you know a little there's a latchkey kid yeah. phenomenon there's yeah. a little more un- unattended there was, there was sort of like uh, um, being forced into the adult world too soon uh, element to it too yeah. and, and I think that this kid fits into that consider also and this is the Veronica Mars thing too is that she she's lost her mother her father is not uh, getting things done um, and part of the resilience of being a, a child and, and being a child of a sleuth too is uh, I think you know justifies you know a little bit of premature maturity well I'm gonna steer us back on course here and uh, go back to the language topic real quick because we didn't really talk about LA Confidential in oh, relation sure. to that and I want to ask Keith a question how much of the film's 
language stems from the novel do you feel versus the, um, the script i'd almost have to, to put you on the, the spot <laughs> no, almost, it's been a while but i almost had to read from the novel because over the course of what's known as now the first la quartet but then the la quartet i mean you can see elroy who had always been a very good writer coming into his own and like by and just stripping away anything unnecessary or never mind the end stuff we, you know we're stripping away we're stripping away verbs we're stripping away any any anything any part that did not contribute to the, the way the machine works just got thrown out it's just very telegraphic so you know the dialogue the fact that people are characters are speaking in longer sentences is, is, is almost a betrayal but again i think it's also but the spirit is there as with the rest of the film i i it is a a true translation but nonetheless a translation of of the source material well i mean i think in and of itself that's like a a good thing i like i'm just looking at the screenwriter brian helgeland like he does not have a good track record mm-hmm. and, I, was lo- I was looking at his imdb too for the same thing <laughs> yeah and if, i mean if you kind of like look at uh movies that he's done like the postman which is very clunky or yeah, payback he and you his know point his point uh point blank remake um conspiracy theory is uh dreadfully cheesy but like a lot of fun and like moves very quickly and a knight's tale is very amusing but then you've got movies like blood work which is just deadly dull and mystic river which is a really clumsy uh... <laughs> really clumsy adaptation we can both say it at the sure. same time yeah and then he did the taking of pelham one two three uh remake and uh mm. cirque du freak the vampire's assistant like there's there's a lot of really clumsy writing in his history so the fact that like la confidential works as well as it does i i think is a minor miracle uh, we haven't really, you know, I don't want to sidetrack it too much, but but uh, uh, we haven't really talked about Curtis Hansen at all. No, either, we haven't. Who directed this film and directed it very well and had kind of been in some ways just sort of a journeyman up to that point. And it's kind of been a little bit of a journeyman since then. He's done some very good movies. I yeah. mean, I, I, uh, I think Eight Mile is good. I think Wonder, Wonder Boys, Boys is, Wonder I Boys think, is his good. best movie. In, in Her Shoes is, is a good film. Too. And The Rocks uh, the Cradle is really underrated, like tone huh. piece, mood piece. It's that's a scary movie. Yeah, and I like I like Bad Influence, but uh, and he, he, an incredible another thing about Curtis Hansen is that his voice is exactly like Michael Douglas's voice. It's incredible. Like hmm. like watch an interview with Curtis Hansen, and I think <laughs> I think he actually did some overdubs on Wonder Boys because their voices are. You know, Michael Douglas has a very distinctive voice. What a huh. good, what a good secret history of Curtis. Oh Hansen. yeah, you know, yes, a secret history of Curtis. Hansen. Well, that is quite the segue. Um, well, let's get into this a little bit, Keith. A lot of what what com- composes L.A. Confidential, the book, and other other Elroy works are stories from L.A. and mm-hmm. insights into an L.A. that maybe we don't know. Uh, so that is your topic. So no? I sort of have like a grand unified theory of of of, uh, of noir and uh, in L.A., which is. If you look at the at the real highlights and and some of the ones lesser known ones, there's there's the public crime that we see, which leads to the bigger crime, which is a crime of the city itself. You know, we have in LA competition we have the Bloody Christmas, which is is a real event that took place, and in, in the Black Dahlia, you see uh, the Zoot Suit riots. Uh, but you know, LA is in some ways a city that should not exist. It, it is a desert city that has to draw its water from elsewhere. If you looked at Chinatown, it draws on a not quite factual account of how I got its water from from stealing it elsewhere, which is not exactly true. But the actual version, there was getting water there is extremely complicated. There there were tragedies. There was there was a drownings of hundreds of people when a dam broke. It is a city that there's kind of an original sin to it, where where the fact that it that it exists is 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 kind of going against nature to begin with. So so the great you know the great alien noirs uh, like this 
are sort of represent the, the kind of kind of tap into this this unnaturalness, this this sense that L.A. is is a place where that's kind of going against the order just just by being there. You have uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which which you know for all its its wild flights of fancy, is the fundamental plot is this conspiracy to remove the streetcars, which really happened. Uh, the nice guys, you know, there the, there really were violations uh, by the motor companies, uh, the, not to the degree that that they were carried out the way they are in this, but nonetheless. Uh, there's there uh, LA Confidential. I don't think the police took over Mickey Cohen's racket, but certainly it is a heightening, which is something that that Elroy does a lot of of things that actually happen too. So I, I think the sunny LA that people know and the darkness that's underneath it, and in some ways that contrast is almost uh, too on the nose, but it works. It still works really well, doesn't it? It really does. From what I've read, uh, it doesn't sound like the LAPD tried to take over Mickey Cohen's racket, but they did actually like capture gangsters and beat them up and tell them to go back to their cities Mm -hmm. and spread the word that like you know don't come to LA don't try to set anything up here like that was apparently taken from real life in addition to you know Johnny Stepanato and having a relationship with Lana Turner and Mickey Cohen himself is a real character and the the, like there's so many things in this movie that actually do come from a real place I don't know whether it adds realism or not. Like it's, it becomes really interesting trivia. Like supposedly there really was a house of prostitution where like everybody uh, was made over like real life starlets of the time. Does knowing that make this a, a deeper, richer movie? I don't know. What I'm suggesting is there's something about the the strange history of LA that naturally lends itself to the to these these uh, stories of, of secret histories. Hmm. Oh. Yeah, and I mean the Hollywood factor plays in this whole idea of performative surface quality that is distracting from something bigger and being that LA is where most movies come from um, I think that is perhaps why and it is made by people who live in LA maybe there there is a gravitation toward those stories because they are living in the system that does have a very strange delineation between reality and fiction. Maybe that's kind of where some of these uh, uh, fixations come from. And Hollywood has always had a real interest in turning the lens back on itself and like navel gazing and like reflecting its own experience. There are so many movies made about movie making, but there are also so many films made about LA. And some of that is just a reflection of, you know, it's right here. It's, it's cheap to shoot, or at least it used to be, um, you know, before the town became expensive to shoot in because everybody was shooting there. There's just, there's a sense that like filmmakers have, have often liked to tell stories about themselves. So, I mean, in that sense, yeah, like they're, they're self mythologizing in telling Mm. the the weird stories about the weird stories. It's turtles all the way down. (laughs) Uh, So you, the next picture show listener can replicate our LA Noir double feature uh la confidential is widely available on dvd and blu-ray as well as on on-demand services and the nice guys is currently in theaters everywhere we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment your next picture show finally it's time to catch each other up on films or film related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast 
We call it your next picture show in the hopes that it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I saw a movie. I didn't really know anything about it at all, and it, it just arrived in my mail uh, from Criterion, which is a film called The Naked Island, which sounds titillating. <laughs> it's not titillating, uh, but it is an extremely compelling movie from uh, director Kaneto Shindo, who it was his breakthrough film. He later went on to do things like uh, Onibaba and Kuraneko, and, and, and I haven't... I, He's new to me. I need to see those films. Yeah, uh, I, I this film was a, a, a kind of a knockout. It's it's um, unusual film. It, it's there is no dialogue. Um, there are some titles and there are some songs and song lyrics and I believe some prayers that are said. But the, the characters never actually talk to each other. It is it is about a family that lives on an island in the Japanese archipelago and they they are they are rice farmers. There is no natural water. Um, on their island. So the mere act of farming and and sustaining themselves there involves going to another island and drawing from the well, carrying their water back over their shoulders and then up, up a hill and using that to water the plants day in and day out repeatedly. And there's just so much, it's, he's, it's wonderful with actually setting up the compositions. It's very extremely cinematic film. Uh, there's so much drama drawn from just the act of a character carrying water up a hill with their back bowing under them. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a fascinating stuff. I should point out is I forgot to mention it's from 1960 and, and Shindo interesting because he directed it pretty much till, up until the last year of his life and he died at the age of uh, 100. Wow. What is it with Japanese directors and like continuing to direct until like really advanced uh, like continuing to direct wonderful mm-hmm. films up until very advanced ages? Don't question it. Nope. <laughs> just just <laughs> appreciate. Call attention to it. Just it appreciate. Yeah. Don't question. Uh, Tasha, what have you got? Um, a couple of films. I've uh, written formal reviews of both of these for uh, The Verge so I, I'm risking repeating myself but both of these films uh, I just... <laughs> really want people to see um i stumped pretty hard for this podcast to be about uh the jodie foster film money monster and we said no tasha (laughs) (laughs) and then they hit me with a rolled up newspaper it was really sad um but i wanted it i wanted so much to pair it with dog day afternoon which is just such a spectacular film and money monster draws it's a the new film by jodie foster it stars george clooney um it's specifically about a, a hostage situation at a mad money like tv show and it draws so much on Dog Day Afternoon. This is one of those those rare occasions where I was really positive about this film, and it like critically, it just it didn't hit off at all. And then at the box office, it didn't hit off at all. And to some degree, for the box office, I I blame the trailer, which completely misrepresents the film. And it was one of those films where like I when I have talked about it to people and how much I enjoyed it, like the universal response <laughs> has been that film. I saw yeah. that. Trailer that can't possibly be good. I hate that reaction so much. Mm-hmm. I found it to be uh, just a really like a taut drama, but also kind of like a lively bleak black comedy, like almost almost along the lines of, although not as good as because you know it's such a good movie, uh, King of Comedy. Like it's that same kind mm-hmm. of like very very dark humor, and I just I found it to be a really textually interesting film. But also, uh, just recently, I watched and reviewed Wiener, the yeah. <laughs> documentary about Anthony Wiener. When I told my husband I was watching it and asked him if he wanted to watch it, he was like, why would I need more Anthony Wiener? Like, I, we all lived through the scandal. Wow. We know all about him. Why would we want to know more? And the answer is that, that every moment of this film is an experience. It's a behind-the-scenes doc uh, made with just incredible access. 
it yeah. was very clearly intended to be his comeback film after his first sexting uh, scandal. And it follows his campaign uh, for New York City mayor as it builds momentum, as he leads in the polls, as he builds confidence, as he's sure he's making a comeback. And then the second scandal hits. <laughs> right. And you get to watch everything fall apart. It is a squirmy and uncomfortable experience, but it's just it's so memorable. And I ended up with like a real sympathy for for who he is in some ways. He is such a pugnacious, scrappy fighter. And you wouldn't want to be like at ground zero when he gets into an argument with somebody. But like watching it from the distance of of understanding much better who he is and how all this happened. It's just it's a really mesmerizing rising doc it is highly entertaining it's really well made yeah, yeah. Highly I, recommend I, it. I think i recommended it a yeah few you, you did and, and oh I'm, did you yeah your, yeah your combined recommendations making me very no, excited should, to see it, see it this see weekend it. i think i think it will give you a, a, a much different impression of, of him and then and also perhaps cause you to question you know what is pertinent when we're talking about who is fit for office because there is a since watching that documentary that Anthony Weider is an extraordinarily good politician. But uh, who knows? Maybe a third sexting scandal would have dropped. Uh, the second one was Carlos Danger, so I don't know how you get around that. Um, <laughs> Genevieve, Danger. how about you? What is your? What I, you I look forward week? to recommending Wiener a couple podcasts down the road when I see it. Finally. You've got to make sure it's at least two podcasts and sexting scandals away before you do it again. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, my actual recommendation is only tangentially film-related, unless you consider stand-up comedy specials to be films, which I'm guessing, Scott, you especially depends do the, not. Depends on the film. Depends <laughs> but, on the stand-up special. Well, I wanted to recommend Talking for Clapping, which is the latest special from Patton Oswalt, uh, who is, in addition to being uh, acquaintance of ours and who wrote a piece for uh, way back at the beginning of the Dissolve World website, uh, he is a great stand-up comedian and a noted cinephile. Uh, he released a book a couple years ago called The Silver Screen Fiend, and movies do work their way into his uh, material quite a lot, and that is certainly the case in Talking for Clapping. There is one bit in particular I want to highlight uh, without giving it away. It's just this run he does kind of comparing men and women politicians and uh, pivots into a comparison between uh, men and women in Hollywood, specifically the relationship between male directors and female editors. And it's just a really sharply observed, very funny, very pointed bit. Uh, It's just really good. And if you're at all interested in the process of filmmaking it should uh certainly speak to you and there's some other kind of film related bits including one that turns into a uh that uh, connects star wars and my little pony friendship is magic which i am looking at scott (laughs) and keith right now uh that that should speak directly to you very well yes so um yes pat and oswald talking for clapping currently on netflix streaming Check it out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I, I've been, you know, I, I texted you like you when I watched it. I'm like, Scott, you need to watch this. No, <laughs> I know, and I think I think it's all the all of well, I mean, yeah. the terrible thing that happened to Pat in, in his personal life is mm-hmm. sort of colored, I guess, uh, uh, my motivation to, to to watch it. But I think I'm, I, I, I can I can safely enjoy this concert film it just hasn't really uh, come up so now it's up and I'll, I'll watch it I promise I think it's really he's just he's such an interesting thinker about movies and culture I, I feel like the film world kind of lost a good critic 
scrambling for work with the rest of us on uh, not making enough money when uh, Hollywood gained a, a superstar who is yeah. in all of the nerdy TV shows and movies ever. His bit, his bit on killing George Lucas is uh, yeah. really c- cuts to the <laughs> core of what, what what is wrong with those prequels and the and the concept of the prequel in general. So Scott, yes. what do you got for us? You know what I have? I have night moves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we we originally batted around the idea of pairing the nice guys with Arthur Penn's mid-70s noir, uh, which Black talked about as an influence on his characters. Um, and I think we made the right choice, since Night Moves is as much a Florida Keys noir as an L.A. noir. Uh, but it was a pleasure for me to revisit Night Moves, which focuses much more on character detail than the machinations of the plot. Uh, Gene Hackman plays a private eye who follows a missing person's case uh, to the Keys. Uh, but the young woman he's seeking, who's played by uh, Melanie Griffith, um, doesn't want to be found. There's a lot of character motivations i suppose that sort of inform this story uh you know hackman has before he goes to the florida keys he has he has discovered that his wife who he loves um has been having this very serious affair um and it's not really a problem for him to sort of crack the case but his his wife's affair and then this girl's situation and the, the kind of the moral implications of bringing this girl back to la to a situation that might be unhealthy at best and dangerous at worst weigh heavily on his conscience. Um, the film, you know, lingers in Florida for a while and it's true. Mysteries lie in the motives and secrets that are hidden within the people that Hackman meets and, and within Hackman himself, you know, and, and just in terms of texture and it's got that great seventies feel to it. I mean, I think Penn just sort of figured out how to bring noir into the seventies in a meaningful way by sort of loosening it up and embracing a more relaxed tone. Um, it's a, it's a very unexpected film. It's a very distinct film and uh, I highly recommend it. Speaking of unexpected uh, film, like two days after we hashed this out, whether we were going to do Night Moves or L.A. Confidential, and we settled on L.A. Confidential, uh, I came home to find Night Moves uh, sitting on my my table in front of my TV downstairs. <laughs> I was like, how did this happen? My husband randomly picked it up. I, Not I'm the Kelly Reichert. The, uh, fairly the, sure. The, uh, the Arthur Penn. Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I, well, it's got Gene Hackman on the cover, so I hope so. Yeah. I, I'm fairly confident that he's not tapping our emails, but <laughs> it, it was it was a little bit of a shock. But I'm really looking forward to watching it, and it's sitting at home waiting for me right now. No, it's the uh, Reichardt's good too. The Reichardt movie is good. So it's completely unrelated to this. No, but. it has nothing to do. I think it's kind of bold for her to call it Night Moves, frankly. But what else we bet around? We bet around uh, Long Goodbye. For we, this? Did. we did. We mm-hmm. did. Shane, Shane Black is not a fan of that film. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Scott, um, how would you feel about a Night Moves Night Moves uh, double feature? I, Will two, those work? I'm always up for two good movies. That's what those two would be. Two good unrelated films except for the title. (laughs) And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out June 14th and 16th. Genevieve, tell us about our next pairing. Akiva Schaefer, Yorma Takone, and Andy Samberg are the members of The Lonely Island, a parody group that burst onto the scene with Lazy Sunday, a Saturday Night Live digital sketch that went viral. Lazy Sunday was an example of what The Lonely Island does best. Take a lame and mundane subject, like eating cupcakes and going to see the Chronicles of Narnia, and pump it up with absurd hip-hop bravado. The group has released a couple of albums and many heavily circulated music videos, and they took a shot at big screen success with the 2007 comedy Hot Rod. Their new movie, Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping, gets back to the music parody that made their reputation, using a fake documentary style to poke fun at the excesses of fame. And like all fake documentaries about musical pomposity, it owes a huge debt to This Is Spinal Tap, the classic 1984 comedy about a metal band on the downward slope of its career. So we'll look at the legacy of This Is Spinal Tap and how its skewering of rock stardom feeds into pop star. 
In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of LA Confidential, The Nice Guys, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave us short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith Phipps. I'm uh, working as an editor and writer at uprocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at kphipps3000. Tasha, what about you? I'm writing film for The Verge. Uh, you can find my reviews of Money Monster and Wiener over there. I'm also on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. No space. Genevieve? I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And uh, you can find my uh, television and film writing in NPR, uh, Variety, New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Vulture, Village Voice, and Oscilloscope's Musings, where I'm editor-in-chief. And uh, that's pretty much it. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at NextPicturePod, via Facebook at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow, or by visiting NextPictureShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks again to Genevieve for producing the show. Thanks, Genevieve. (laughs) With assistance from Colin the Animal Griffith. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Hey.